Welcome to the Testimony Podcast, people of faith telling the stories that matter from their lives. I'm your host, Andrew Chamberlain, and I'm delighted that you can join us for this conversation. You can subscribe to the Testimony Podcast on all of the major podcast distributors and follow us on Twitter at TestimonyCast and Instagram at TestimonyPodcast. And welcome to the Testimony Podcast. My guest for this episode is someone who has an abiding memory of what it is to be a refugee. At the age of 16, he had to flee from Kenya and ended up as one of a family of 15 living above a little corner shop in Shepherd's Bush in London in 1967. He was brought up in a Hindu family, but was also influenced by the Sikh faith, and he spent a number of years at a Muslim school. But then, when he was a student at Imperial College in London, he encountered some followers of Jesus and this had a profound influence on his life. Today, he can look back on a distinguished career in business and civic life and he has plenty of stories to tell from that time. My guest today is the author, entrepreneur and former refugee, Ram Gudumal, a man who knows what it is to start with almost nothing build a successful career and still have time to serve on the boards of a number of public and charitable organisations and to be awarded a CBE in recognition of that service. This is his story. Ram, welcome to the Testimony Podcast. Thank you very much for joining us for this episode. It's great to have you with me today. I want to start by asking if you could just tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, uh, thank you, Andrew. I, I was born in East Africa in Mombasa, Kenya. My family actually originated from what became Pakistan, but what was British India. And at partition, they had to flee. They were Hindus. And the part they were in became the Muslim part of South Asia, Pakistan. They fled to East Africa, where I was born. Again, 20 years later, uh, well, for me, 16 years later, but for the family, 20 years later, we we had to again uh, leave because the family were forced. There was a forced expulsion from East Africa, and we arrived Uh, overnight in London as refugees. We had British passports. So again, 20 years later, a second migration Mm. and uh, arrived with just enough to buy a corner shop, Uh, 15 of us, uh, four bedrooms above the shop, and life began in Shepherd's Bush in London. Uh, The family actually left a palace behind in South Asia. Uh, We left a 15-bedroom accommodation in Mombasa and now find find ourselves fifteen of us in four bedrooms in London, and that so so an East African Asian is how I would describe myself in mm. background terms, a, a British East African Asian, and that that at least is my background in terms of my origins and coming in to London to to stay and settle and begin life here. Okay, and just listening to that makes makes me want to ask this question. Actually, what was it like for you arriving? Then as, uh, you must have been 16 or 17, that sort 16, of age. 16, 16. Uh, 16 so 16, <laughs> you arrive as a refugee in this country. How did, what was that like for you? How did, what, what, were your, what are your memories of that, that time, that moment? Freezing, freezing cold. <laughs> never never seen cold because from Mombasa with the temperature of the 30s and steaming and uh, uh, hot to suddenly land on the 2nd of January. Uh, with the temperature minus whatever it was, uh, you open your mouth and smoke comes out, and you wonder does everyone smoke in this country? <laughs> and uh, uh, and life beginning in the corner shop, and I suppose early memories, the journey to school. This was in '67, '68 when Enoch Powell, a politician in Britain, who you may yeah, or may not yeah. remember, was yeah, making yeah. some fairly 
controversial speeches that uh, on the roads, on the streets, gave people the license and liberty to attack, abuse, shout. And so leaving mm. from the shop to the school on day one, uh, we realized as family members that we couldn't go alone, that we had to go in threes and fours to be safe. So that's mm. an early memory of, uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, just being intimidated, teased, attacked, uh, threatened, um, never beaten, but close to it. Once I just mm. had to run into a random shop and escape any what I was afraid of. Mm. Uh, so that was one. Mm. The other one was, of course, just enjoying 15 of us, four bedrooms was a different life from what we had before. And when I say enjoying, you, when you have a corner shop with chocolates and sweets it's, and teenagers, it's great fun. <laughs> but, but, you have, but we all had to work because everybody helped with the shop. Yes, and yeah. uh, what was exciting is that within six months, we were able to open a second shop because wow. we understood the business. We understood the market. We are business people. I'm a Sindhi. Yeah. If you, when you ask me about my background, Sindhis come from Sindh, which is now in Pakistan. And Sindhis are business people. Uh, they say, if, you, if it moves, we sell it. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really a uh, And it's a commu community known for its business acumen because in India, in South Asia, they say, if you see a Sindhi or a poisonous snake, don't hesitate who to kill first. So it's, uh, we have a reputation. And that reputation paid dividends in London when we bought that shop. And we've always been business people. The fact that we left a palace in South Asia was grandfather buying and selling silk. This is, I'm talking, uh, over 100 uh, years ago, setting yes. up export and import of silk from Japan to the ports of East Africa where the British were building railways. Can you imagine doing trading without internet, without, without telex, without anything? The family is doing trading and making a fortune out of selling silk to the wives of the railway workers in East Africa. Okay. So they were able yes. to build the palace. In East Africa, yes. again, business started uh, and, uh, and uh, even after the war, it flourished and we did very well, but again, expelled. In London, we arrived one corner shop within six months, two, within two years, six shops. And uh, so, so the business, you know, we understood the market. We previous owners would shut the corner shop at six. We never shut. We opened at four. Mm. Uh, started newspaper rounds. Uh, served the local community. Discovered new communities. Immigrants like us. We discovered a community that spoke with a different accent, and we wondered who they were. And discovered they came from a place called Ireland. And when they said Ireland, we said, "Oh, what do you miss from your country?" And uh, they said, we miss Irish Independent, Irish Times, Carol's number one cigarettes. And they gave us a list. We brought that across for them. Okay. They yeah. paid a premium and we turned around more. We made more and were able to survive, more than survive, prosper. And, and, and uh, yeah, so, so uh, th those are just some early memories. And school mm. was an interesting mm. experience because having been to a very good school in East Africa, where I got six um, A's in my O-levels to suddenly come here and be placed by the local authorities in a school behind a place called Wormwood Scrubs, a prison in London, uh, where yes. many of the students had one of the parents in that prison and a council estate nearby in Shepherd's Bush, uh, which uh, behind Loftus Road uh, 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 Stadium, Queen's Park Rangers. Yes, yes. Uh, football ground. So, um, and very quickly we learned we had to invest in the blue and white scarf and the blue and white hat, the Queen's Park Rangers colors, if you we were to survive even the journey to school. So it was a whole learning experience, an interesting experience. Um, as I said, 
cutting uh, cutting my teeth in the business world, uh, helping run the shop and being put in charge of finances. Mm, Because one mm. of the things that happens with migrations is tragedies. So my Mm. biological father died within, uh, within a few years of arriving in East Africa because the shock of losing the palace and being the eldest son meant mm. a lot of shame and a lot mm. of disgrace and he couldn't cope with it and in the end he died uh, he was only 28 or something and uh, then when we arrived in london but of course thank god for the extended asian family my uncle looked after the whole family seven of his children four of us his wife mother and my mother and uh, so we were all looked after and when we arrived in london he experienced what my biological father experienced before him Mm. And uh, he was my earthly father, really. Uh, and mm. he couldn't survive the cold, the shame of running a big business and now running, selling sweets and chocolates was a huge disgrace for him. And he didn't survive. And within months, he died. So we we, we had responsibility thrown at us at a very early age, mm. 17. And basically, mm. he made me in charge of the money because none of the other brothers or family members had gone beyond O level. Uh, okay. Even 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 beyond eleven plus or twelve, but uh, in Britain you have to serve, learn till you were fifteen or sixteen, and then yes. they ran, yeah. and then they were going, and yeah. then they go into business. Hence, we could buy the extra shops. They were all older; they could run their shops, and and <laughs> I, I was yeah. in charge of the finances at least for the first shop, and uh, and uh, that continued even while I was studying at school, and I was fortunate right. to get my A levels. Uh, he was very keen because I'd done my eleven plus and my GCSEs. Uh, GCEs, I had done O-levels, he was keen that I went to university and became a doctor yes. or a lawyer or an accountant. <clears throat> I ended up going to learn physics. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yes. and so th- th- there's an interesting story because, you know, where do you go when you run a corner shop and you don't have the money and you're not eligible for government grants or anything? Luckily, the headmaster saw my potential, wrote to the authorities, they gave me a scholarship, and uh, I then had to choose a college, and I chose a college I'd never heard of in my life called Imperial, which was a five-pence bus ride on the number 49 bus. That made the decision. That's where I landed, not knowing what the college was about, but now I realize I was very fortunate to land there, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I got my degree in physics, and um, life went on. So you went there because it was local and it was cheap for you to travel there? Yeah, five-pence bus ride, and I had yeah. enough money to buy chicken and ham pie, chips and baked beans <laughs> uh, Monday to Friday to survive lunch. Yeah, and That was my daily diet for, Excellent. I never forget it, many years. Uh, chicken and ham pie, chips and beans. Chicken That's and right. ham pie, food. chips and beans. Excellent. Correct. Baked beans, yeah. <laughs> Two um, and six. <laughs> I'm thinking now about some of the things that you've said in years subsequent to that, because you've spoken up for refugees a number of times in your life. Is, that, is part of that come out of your own experience as a refugee, do you think? Well, it's interesting. You see, once we ran the shop, we were making money, you forget about your origins that you were a refugee or even a foreigner or a okay. migrant, except when you get attacked or people mm. make nasty comments. But, you know, you'd learn to ignore them. Uh, life goes on and you get thick-skinned. But when I ran for mayor of London for the year 2000, when this, when the Times newspaper broke the embargo on the press release that I was going to be running for mayor, they, they ran the headline because, what's his name, Andrew Pierce did the interview. He was then with the, with the Times. And when Andrew Pierce did the interview, 
he, he learned I was a refugee. So the headlines for the article was, former refugee throws hat into the ring. <laughs> now that hit the wires and a lot of refugee community members came to the first hustings uh, because okay. they read that a refugee was running for mayor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, I think at the first hustings when I went, I hadn't realized the subtext out there, but there were 15 candidates, I think, all of us lined up at uh, a place in, in, uh, in East London, uh, Toynbee Hall. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so there we had Frank Dobson, the Labour candidate, Ken Livingston, um, Norris, Nor Norris, uh, uh, Chris Norris, or Norris the, the, the Stephen Norris, the Conservative candidate. He was yes. a government minister this time, Stephen Norris. Um, they called him uh, whatever they called him. It would be rude to put on the news but here, but, they, but it's, 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 in the, it's in the media. He's known as that in, in the snide columns. Anyway, uh, Nor Norris ran and... Uh, uh, so that that was the day, in fact, um, that there was one seat empty. I think Jeffrey Archer was arrested that day, so he couldn't turn up for the gymnastics. <laughs> and I was I was the newest kid on the block, so I, they placed me right at the end of the table. And uh, every other candidate, and because of the numbers, they said three minutes to each of you to speak. So everybody spoke for three minutes. You know, what's your priorities for London? Transport, crime, housing, uh, roads, education, whatever. It came to my turn, number 15, and I was terrified. I'd never been part of a political party. I'd never uh, uh, run. And uh, there's a whole story on how I ran in a book I've written, How Would Jesus Vote? Uh, yes. Subsequently. But uh, I, I, uh, at that point, I thought, you know, what would Jesus do? Mm. It ran mm. through my mind. I said, you know, and that's the reason I was running, because I'd seen a map of London, interestingly, I found out at Toynbee Hall that that map I had seen in a business meeting was actually drafted and drawn at Toynbee Hall by somebody called Booth, I think. And uh, it was a map of London from, I think, 1890. And then I saw another map uh, uh, for, for 1990. And they showed the poverty across London by a color scheme. And it was the same 100 years later. It hadn't shifted. Wow. As a businessman, that angered me because I thought, what is going on? Taxpayers' money has been poured into addressing this, this rich, poor divide in London and the poverty areas in London. There seems to be no difference. Why can't I use my business skills now to do something about mm. this? Mm. I had begun using my business skills already when it came to raising money for the poor in the developing world when I set up, along with Steve Chalk, a project called Christmas Cracker which is yet another story, because mm. uh, that, again, is in my other book, Sari and Chips. And that started when, on a business trip, I visited India uh, to buy seafoods for our seafood business in Scotland. Um, on the last day of a 10-day trip, I visited the slums in Mumbai, in Dharavi, and uh, something I'd never been to before, something I'd never seen or experienced before. And that motivated me, when I came back, to give up my full-time job and to uh, uh, establish that charity Christmas Cracker, which over an eight-year period raised over nearly five million pounds by mobilizing 50,000 teenagers to make a difference in the developing countries and to mm. those who are not as well off as they are here in Britain. Mm. Mm. Having done that in that context, I felt I surely I could use that also in my local London context. So hence, when I ran for mayor, one of the drivers was, why could I use my business skills? And Tony Blair was asking for business people to throw their hat into the ring. 
I hadn't appreciated the political angle here that this would go between the three main parties. Naive as I was, I said, oh, he's looking for business people. I'm one. Of course I can do it. I'll get it. I'm going to do it. <sighs> and I didn't realize how politicized it would be. But never mind. That's your learning. Uh, so so, so uh, uh, when it came for my turn to speak, having seen that map, having seen uh, that map driving me to say, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring now to make a difference, uh, I said, what would Jesus do? And I thought, right. I know what the issues are, having come myself as a refugee. Uh, we need jobs and we need uh, homes because, you know, you end up being homeless. You risk being homeless. I mean, we were lucky that in the corner shop there were four bedrooms and 15 of us could squeeze in and survive in four bedrooms. At least we were not homeless, but that must be a big issue. So hmm. there was there was the homeless. And then where typically refugees are placed are places where it is not then easy to get to the shops. You know, they don't have cars. You can't buy a car in day one. So you're, so, so my mantra at that, at that meeting, really, I spoke up for the homeless, the jobless, and the carless. Those headlines came to me, and I, in five minutes, just threw that in the air. And whereas every other candidate who spoke got a nice applause of uh, uh, maybe seven out of 10, 10 or eight out of 10, the Richter scale broke when I finished speaking. The entire place erupted into a huge applause. I thought, oh, my goodness. And all the other candidates looked and said, where did he come from? How did he achieve that? <laughs> and yes. uh, to me, while that felt good at the time, the, really thing, the real thing that was brilliant was in the evening when going to bed, I put on my radio, BBC Radio London, and the lead, lead candidate was being interviewed. And he was asked, what, what are the three big issues you see for London? <laughs> <laughs> the homeless, the shopless, the carless. And I said to my wife, this is brilliant. You know, he, and my agenda has been taken up. And after that, for several weeks, that was the thing that every candidate began trying yeah. to make a comment on and addressing because they could see how popular it was and how yeah. important it was to address that. <laughs> so... That followed then by the invitation to the to the to the employability forum meeting at the Commonwealth Institute, and uh, I must say uh, that really to come to the question you really asked me, how did I get involved with the refugee community, and why did I decide to really go to support that? Then, as a trustee of the employability forum, that became a passion right. for me. I, I learned about the issues. I learned about the current challenges. You know, they get the they get indefinitely to remain but they don't get the national insurance number. They get the leave to remain. Nobody wants to work and employ them if they don't have a national insurance number because you can't open a bank account without an insurance number. So you then campaign with government ministers. That's what we want. And we achieve it. And that was exciting. And then mm. when the Earl of Limerick sadly died, um, I was asked to be the chairman of the Employability Forum. And that then continued. And uh, it involved some very significant developments with government ministers, government policy being influenced, us being seen as policy people to bring in to policy development and government think tanks. So that was very mm. exciting. Yeah. Okay. So one of the other things I was going to ask you about was, I think you said that your, your family, if you go back one or two generations had come, uh, you, you, they were a Hindu family. Um, yes. And you talked about being a Hindu family in before yeah. partition and the impact of that, yeah. but now you are, you're a Christian. Yes. So how did that happen? How was it, sure. was this you? Was it, was it your parents? How, how did that, how did your yeah. journey to faith happen? Sure, sure. I mean, I was brought up as a Hindu, not a very strict Hindu, but, you know, regular worshipping at the Hindu temple every every Monday. Mm -hmm. uh, but because we come from a part of South Asia, which is also at the border with, with uh, 
the Sikh community. We we follow the Sikh faith as well. And so on Saturday nights, it was the Sikh Gurudwara. This is in East Africa. And following both those, but to compound it all, the uh, most the, the Hindu school had run out of space. So I was sent to the Muslim school. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. so from the age of five, I went to a Muslim school with every morning at assembly, the Quran being read, uh, Islamic prayers, the 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 you know all that. So up till today, I can still recite chunks of the Quran with no hesitation or difficulty because for ten years you uh, I, I got what I call passive Islam. You were a passive smoking. Well, I got passive Islam. I could just hear it and take it, and very yes. often answer the questions for the instructors would ask better than the, the, the my Muslim classmates could answer, and would help them <laughs> out of difficult spots from the last bench. So uh, th those three faiths were the influence in my life. But it was coming to London to Imperial College, and I got my place. And in the third year, I was obliged to stay in the halls of residence. Okay. So for the first time, leaving the safety of home with yeah. all the extended family, uh, we were, yes, we were in a sort of ghetto of our own, of community members and friends sticking to ourselves and mm. not mingling with the other or outside. Now I was obliged to, forced to live with others who were not like me. And uh, within less than 24 hours, it became very depressing uh, mm. because I didn't know how to do it. You know, I just couldn't. Uh, uh, couldn't understand it. It's easy standing behind a counter and selling goods. You don't have to mingle. You don't have to. You collect your money and you say goodbye. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. The transaction gone. But now it's socializing. And that was very tough. And so within within a day, I found my way to what I call the great in British invention, the pub. <laughs> and, uh, and I landed at the Southside Bar at Imperial College, uh, uh, ordered a half lager. <laughs> And in that bar was uh, there were a group of musicians who I now know were with a group called Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Agape Ministries. And as they sang songs and shared stories, I was very taken with what I had, what, what I was seeing. And I uh, listened. The song they were singing is a song I heard on radio. Put your hands in the hands of the man from Galilee. Mm. And until now, um, uh, I had always imagined. Um, Jesus to be from London, the city, pinstripe suit, bowler hat, blue eyes, blonde, because he came with the British colonialists and was yes. part of the British thing. And, you know, Islam, Muslim friends at school, Hindu, Sikh, but never, never go for the Christian thing. It's the white man's religion. Now I'm hearing that the man of Galilee was being equated to Jesus. And uh, yes. that struck me. I thought, "Ooh, that's interesting." Mm. Um, I've always assumed he was from, you know, London or the <laughs> West, or he was a Western <laughs> one. This is more like my culture. So yes. uh, I filled a little for. And then uh, the, the other thing that happened was um, uh, the the man who was speaking, the the young people who were speaking, uh, kept bringing out this big book uh, called the Bible and reading from it. But interestingly, the verses they were reading, uh, these verses, um, uh, the story goes back to when my eldest brother, he was one who couldn't cope with moving to Britain at all. So uh, literally within, once my uncle died, okay, my father died in Kenya and you know, I was six weeks old when, when he died. Uh, but when we arrived in London, my uncle died, I was 17, 16, 17. 
but my eldest brother, who was only three years older than me, couldn't cope because, again, he felt this responsibility of the mm. eldest and the big mm. thing. And um, he basically, uh, um, uh, uh, under tragic circumstances, landed up in hospital, is how I would put it. Right. I'm conscious if this is, this is going everywhere, I don't want to go into too much detail. And um, no. thank God they pumped him and he survived. But when he came to, uh, he saw a man in a black robe and a white collar standing next to him. And he thought, oh, my goodness, am I in heaven or something? <laughs> Where am I? <laughs> but the man explained to him that he'd been saved, asked him what had caused him this difficulty and what, 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 what got him to land here. And uh, at the end of the conversation, he gave him a little booklet called Daily Strength. And in the book, Daily Strength, produced by Scripture Gift Mission, were 30 verses of Scripture, one for each day. Mm. And when he brought it home, uh, they were amazing scriptures, you know, very reassuring, very faith building, mm. very grace filling, very uh, comforting and daily strength. And so we all looked at it and generously said, oh, that is great. We all want one. We all want one. So we read the phone number, found out the phone number and phone scripture gift mission. And we said, we've seen this thing. Can we have some? They said, how many? We said, 15. <laughs> <laughs> they must have laughed. They said, OK, they sent it to us. And all of us got our own copy. Excellent. And I started reading that every day from 67, 68. Yes. Until a year and a bit when I got there. And that evening, every verse they were reading from that big book, I knew was in my little book in my pocket. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I yeah. said, I don't know what they're reading, but uh, I'm going to dispute this, you know. And uh, I'm going to, uh, I'm, so I filled a little form that said, I would like a further discussion. And I canceled discussion to argument and said, I want an argument. This is my room number. <laughs> Linstead Hall, 212. Come and see me. And th that's what happened. The guy called Big John, blue eyes, blonde. <laughs> he job. landed in my room. And uh, there began an argument. I made the coffee. We kept chatting, kept arguing. And in the end, he couldn't argue anymore because I brought the Hindu, Sikh, Muslim, metaphysical, every perspective I could. And he was a banker from the city. And uh, so he, he I knew she was an economist, economics graduate or whatever. And he, he gave up with me, but gave me a little Bible, good news for modern man, mm, mm. New Testament. Mm. And I felt bad because I felt I'd really um, uh, argued for the sake of arguing. And there was someone at least willing to come and see me, talk to me. And I sort of effectively booted him out by my arguments. <laughs> so I started reading the, this book. And uh, the long story, but cut a long story short, it led me to Revelation 3.20. Uh, I behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and eat with me. I decided I would just do, do just mm -hmm. that. Open this big window in my room in Linstead Hall. There were two big windows that slide. It was freezing cold, but I got on my knees, opened the window, and there was a prayer at the end of the paperwork they had given me. And I prayed that prayer, uh, accepting the fact that I was a sinner, uh, accepting the fact that I needed to repent and uh, acknowledging Jesus as someone who I would invite into my life mm. to take charge and to take control. And um, and uh, when I say control, meaning, you know, submitting to his authority and seeing what is it there that I can learn from this man. Because as I was uh, uh, reading this book, I could see that here was a man with very simple teachings that I could understand mm. and that I could follow. And uh, mm. there began my journey with Christ. So I wondered if we could go on now and just 
do a little bit yeah. more of what, in fact, you've already been doing just now. I, sure. I wonder if you could share one or two stories of how you feel that Jesus has been your companion. Yeah. There are things that you could share around that for us. One of them, I suppose, is may sound trivial, but again, when I got my job at the family business, okay, I worked with Lloyds Bank International in the mm. city, all very nice, then landed up in in uh, in in Ferney Voltaire in France, near Geneva, Switzerland, with my first job. I'll never forget when um in almost the first few months of my taking the job, my boss had to leave on an urgent trip and put me in charge of the office. <laughs> It was Friday, and uh, he says nothing is going to happen on a Friday. It's the, I've <laughs> taken care of everything, and all's fine, and um, that was it. And then I got a call from a supplier saying, uh, you know, I'm calling you because, look, uh, there's a contract you'll, you'll have engaged in to buy 20,000 cartons of sardines. Um, these were supposed to be collected uh, whenever. They're now ready for collection, and I must warn you that if these are not collected uh, soon, you will incur storage charges and uh, penalties for non-collection of goods. And I got, I said, oh dear, no one told me about this contract. And so um, I decided to call my shipping agent in Bremen, Germany. And when I called him, I said, look, there's a shipment in the Canary Islands. I asked the guy, how soon can it be collected? He said, oh, well, you know, if you come next week, you can collect it. And But the longer it takes and you'll be risking you. And so I told the freight agent, can you find me a ship that could be chartered lots of ships? Is there any charter that we have that can go there quickly and collect it? He said, I'm sorry, no, none. There is a ship here in Bremen, in, 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 in Hamburg, in Hamburg, in Germany. And um, it's still loading. Um, it's, it's, uh, uh, um, and I can get this ship out very quickly if you want. And um, uh, it could try and leave by the evening. I'm going to do my best. I'll pay overtime. I said, wow, that's great. So I called up the supplier. I said, right, sorted. I got a ship coming to you in uh, the Canary Islands, and uh, it could be leaving today. It'll be a four or five-day journey. It'll be there next week. And he said, well, it's not that soon. I said, hey, you said these goods are ready. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting the ship to you in time. What's the problem? He said, look, I meant they could be ready for next week. <laughs> I said, Lord, help me. I said, and this is all verbal. I know I'm naive. I'm a new, you know, I've not asked for anything in writing. I've not got any confirmations. And those were telex days, not fax days even. You get telexes. So there's yes. no telexes. It's only his word against mine. And I'm thinking, what do I do now? And I said, look, my ship could arrive there by Tuesday. The goods are not ready. I'm now going to pay $3,000 a day for a ship to wait for the goods to be ready. What is going on? And he said, well, you've taken the decision. I said, hang on, you forced me. He said, well, but you should have checked with me, waited for my written confirmation. I said, but look, the gentleman, but no, I would be the loser. So I said, what do I do? It was Friday. And I did the only thing I know to do. I prayed. Mm. I just paused. I prayed. I said, I'm, I'm not going to lose sleep. I'm not going to lose my life on this. Um, what's happened has happened. I can't undo what is going on, but I can no. pray. You know, yeah. it's a principle I've always used. Never let what you cannot do stop you from doing what you can do. I can pray at least. <laughs> and I prayed. And guess what? Uh, I, I, I went out to collect my wife from her office where she was, uh, uh, where she was, came back to check what was happening. And I saw a telex in the office from Germany. Mr. Gidumal, you will not believe what has happened. A crane has hit one of the hatches of the ship. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is going to need repairing. This may regretfully take a few days. So I'm so sorry I can't give you your ship very quickly. <laughs> I was relieved. I then called the supplier who was still working overtime on a Friday night and said to him, how quickly can you get these sardines ready for me? Yeah. <laughs> and the rest is history. He said, we're <laughs> going to work overtime at our end and we start getting the sardines rolling out. And within four or five days, when your ship arrives or whenever it gets there, the sardines can begin loading. There is no demurrage, no extra storage. It's all sorted. To me, it was an answer to prayer. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. if you talk about the Lord being with you, I look yeah. at that and say, the, the Lord helped and provided. Uh, so, so that's one. The other, the, the other big one is, I suppose, uh, running for mayor of London. That was a big decision. I mean, yeah. there are many decisions I could come up with. You know, the Christmas cracker story, going to Bombay, but uh, and starting Christmas cracker. But this one, which was running for mayor of London, was a huge decision because it was some doing something I'd never done in my life. <laughs> I'd never part, belonged to any political party. Uh, I'd never done anything like it. So, what do you do? So, <laughs> the, the the young man who had asked me to consider running had met me after I'd done a BBC interview for BBC South Asia, and I said, "Oh, um, talk to these four or five people. I'm not your man." He calls me a month, a week later, saying, "We've had a committee meeting. We are unanimous. You are the man." I said, "Oh yeah." I said, "Well, I'll have to ask my wife." <laughs> So in my mind, I'm thinking, I'll ask my wife. My wife will say, no, I can come back to him and say, sorry, my wife said no. <laughs> because uh, th- this was a young Christian, and these were many other young young people. He told me he was working with him. And I thought, you know, and I've always tried to encourage young Christians uh, and mentor young Christians where possible. Uh, this is what Christmas Cracker was about. 50,000 teenagers mobilized. You know, it was working with that community. So here I was thinking, what do I do? So I, I really thought I would never respond positively. So I came home, spoke to my wife. And of course, she said, uh, it's a great question that they've asked you. Um, uh, I said, look, I should say no to them. Don't you agree? She said, well, don't we pray about these things? I said, oh, yes, we do. Um, you pray your way. I'll pray God says no. <laughs> and I still remember the discussion by the kitchen sink in, in our house. And uh, I thought, right, let's keep praying. Now, what started happening was interesting. There was no instant answer that said, yes, you do this, or no, you don't do this. Day by day, my eyes started opening to the issues that I was seeing in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the refugee issue uh, wasn't mm-hmm. quite evident, but I was seeing, for example, how attempts were being made to remove Christian influence in society or not even acknowledge the Christian underpinnings of Great Britain. So, yes, I was a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. Here's one example. And I learned uh, from uh, speaking to uh, some of the people there that the Royal Society of Arts was a fellowship of the Royal Society of Arts. Uh, The Royal Society of Arts always had a bishop as one of its council members and one of the people who who would oversee things there. And then I looked at parliament and learned that uh, that every time a, a new member of parliament is sworn in or when the new parliament is sworn in, they all file in, but they bow to the speaker. And I was always intrigued by why they're bowing to Mr. Speaker. Well, where the speaker sits is the altar of St. Stephen's, the church that was on that site. And what they're doing is bowing to the altar of St. Stephen's. They're bowing, acknowledging a higher authority and recognizing that there is somebody there higher than them to whom they owe their allegiance. And I thought that's powerful symbolism here that, you know, they're all doing that and coming through the house and, and bowing down 
towards the altar of St. Stephen's and then discovering that more time is, is spent uh, in prayer in the House of Commons than actually your Prime Minister's questions time. There is a chaplain. You know, the order of papers always has prayer. Prayer, now it mm. may be just in name, but there is some symbolism here and some message here, which is very powerful. And I could read in the papers attempts to, 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 to for example, say we don't need the chaplain anymore. Uh, let's cut prayers from parliament. We don't need prayers in parliament. But those have been resisted, thankfully, because however symbolic they are, they are still prayers. And, uh, mm. and so when I started mm. seeing that kind of push in society, I was beginning to see these signs of, uh, of, of secularism uh, uh, trying, to, trying to remove any references to the influence that uh, the, the gospel has had in, the, in, in British society, in British Parliament, in everything that has gone on in Great Britain. And uh, I, I just felt that until and unless this is spoken about in the public square, we risk losing this. So I know we continue to lose it, but I thought at least let me do my bit. Uh, I had read a book by Tom Sine, a futurologist, called The Mustard Seed Conspiracy. And in that, I remember one very simple sentence that he, he wrote in that. If one person believes they can make one pound of a difference, a million people will make a million pounds of a difference. And mm. then I read this most amazing story about a young boy at the beach uh, who was spending his time throwing uh, these shellfish back into the sea. These are live sort of seafoods. And an old man comes by saying, young man, you're wasting your time. What are you doing throwing them back in the sea? Every time you throw one, another million land on the seashore. And he picks one up, throws it in, and he said, it makes all the difference to that one. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and, you know, so I thought, look, whatever little I can do, whatever little difference it makes, it'll be worth doing. Let me give it a shot. And so day by day and bit by bit, that prayer of should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I, began to get answered and I began to see the need. And I thought, mm. gosh, there's a real need for this product. The flagship, the manifesto that I'm standing on, the Christian People's Alliance, underpinned by Christian Democrat values. And the Christian Democrat values were very, very simple and six principles, social justice, compassion, reconciliation, respect for life, uh, empowerment, and stewardship of resources. These are Christian Democrat principles drawn from biblical values and principles, quoted by Archbishop Runcie, quoted by Pope Paul II in his uh, Annus Sentimus, I forget the year, I think 67, whichever year that was. I mean, these are really uh, underpinning principles, which I said would under, underpin any policies that we derive and draw for the mayoral race in London. Mm. And so I threw my hat in the ring and decided to run. And so in terms of the J Jesus journeying with me, to me, it was the journey that began with the time of praying with my wife about this decision. Mm. Day by day, seeing how he was opening my eyes to what is around me and bit by bit gaining in the confidence to do this, uh, uh, not in my strength, but knowing that something beyond me is there which is well worth fighting for and mm. campaigning for mm. anyway a couple of interesting things i think come out from the stories you've you've told one is with you've told us two stories there one where you get a quick answer like you know you needed that chip yeah. delayed exactly. um, and that <laughs> happened but interestingly the other story you've shared 
there wasn't a kind of there wasn't like a kind of light show and a quick answer. Yeah, exactly. Actually, I think it's worth us remembering that sometimes you know God moves at His own pace, and He does things do come just just a little bit slowly. And, and actually, there are deeper purposes. I mean, this is That's the other right. thing that I draw from this. It my sense is that you are you are also interested in what is happening strategically. And I wondered if you could just comment on that, that, that what, what kind of thinking do you think people of faith need to do to appreciate what is happening strategically as well as the kind of tactical things that we can all do to serve each other and to, to further the kingdom? I think, I mean, it needs patience, which is very hard. <laughs> um, you, you know, I was told uh, by, by um, gosh, there was a vicar, Raymond Turvey at St. Paul's Onslow Square, the church I landed in. Mm. And uh, his wife said to me, I'll never forget, at the sort of dinner for freshers at uni, uh, St. Augustine waited 17 years for his son. Some story she gave me. And I thought, wow, because yeah. I was telling them, I've become a follower of Jesus. I want my mom to come to Christ. And she's not responding. And it's already been a month. <laughs> 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 and seven years later, she gave her life to Christ. <laughs> and, you know, it's that kind of, it, but it was needing patience, needing uh, um, so when we look at strategy, you know, strategy is a long-term term. It's not a term. The, the very fact that we use the word strategy, uh, you know, you have three-year strategies, five-year strategies. Yes. And it's it's looking at the cycle of the industry. Now I speak as a businessman here. You know, uh, when I started life in business with the corner shop, that was a daily you know, there was no strategy. It was every day. You'd yeah. watch the newspaper. You'd, you'd, you'd ask your suppliers of Cadbury's and Nestle's, look, what advertising campaigns are you having? And when will you start showing your TV adverts for which products? Accordingly, can we make sure we have those in stock so we don't lose that business? That's yes. like short term, daily. Uh, then joining the business I did in Switzerland, the family business, uh, there again, trading, you were three months, six months, nine months. So you're then looking at what will sell in the next three months or six months or nine months, and you get used to working that way. We then bought a, 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 an aluminium factory. Now you're talking aluminium, which is you're talking seven-year, eight-year. You know, you're talking products that have a longer-term steel. You know, with steel, you talk 20 years, and you're looking at prices. It's, it's all long-term uh, because things get bought way in advance. Uh, uh, you know, buildings take years to build. So everyone's ordering it. Do you see what I mean? So mm, that's mm. the business world. I think in the spiritual world, we need to make sure we, uh, we understand that God, you know, it says to the Lord, uh, uh, a thousand years is but a day for the Lord. Mm, mm. Or, or the, even the other way around. I don't know. It's like making sure we... Uh, do not rush that we trust. I think the key word here is trust and faith. Yes. It's really having the trust and the faith that as long as the Lord is at the center of our thinking and as long as we are prayerfully approaching these things, then we should not lose that trust and faith in the Lord. So like when I ran for mayor, there was a, 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 a fantasy mayor poll that the new statement was running, okay? And this is, again, ties in with the final results. This fantasy mayor poll invited six of the 15 candidates to submit their policies and to have them tested with the public on a fantasy mayor blind internet checkout. So they had the main candidates, Conservative, Labour, Lib Dem. They had Ken Livingston, the Independent. Yeah. 
uh, and uh, they had the Green Party, yes. And then Christina Odoni, who was the editor, asked if I would consider being involved with my policies mm. thrown mm. into the equation. So I was thrilled. I said, any publicity is better than no publicity, sure. Yeah, absolutely, this is, yeah. This is, this is our policy. Here are our policies. Put them on your Fantasy Mayor website and see what happens. <laughs> now, when you log on to the Fantasy Mayor website, uh, you're asked, who would you vote for? And everybody went for Ken, well, the majority, like 70%. And I got like, uh, I think, uh, 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 under 4%, which was already, by the way, quite exciting. And now I, when I realize now, I thought at that time I was depressed. I think, oh, is that all I'm going to get? <laughs> but when they answered the 15 policy questions of what do you want from Londoners, when they answered these 15 questions in terms of transport, housing, crime, education, and all range of issues, they then matched that with the policies that the candidates were proposing, and I came tops. <laughs> Other policies were the most popular and chimed with and resonated with what Londoners were looking for. And that, to me, was a real statement that said people out there want Christian values but don't know it. They have forgotten where yes, these values yes. and policies have come yes. from. They do not realize that many of the people who put forward policies that they appeal to them actually are rooted. So justice, compassion, yeah, you know, yeah. those are all part of our policies. Yeah. Reconciliation. Yeah. They said, oh, I like that. I want that. And so the fact that this independent blind poll confirmed that other policies were number one, so much so that it got reported in Time magazine yeah. in the United States. It got reported in every news, almost every newspaper in Britain. I was shocked. You know, the day that I found out about this, I found out from the person doing Time Out magazine. The editor of Time Out called me for an interview for Time Out as a mayoral <laughs> candidate. And he, <clears throat> his first question was, how are you? I said, oh, I'm depressed. You know, this is terrible what's going on. I'm not getting any publicity. They're only giving it to the three main parties. I had no idea that as a minority candidate in terms of political parties, I would just not get the coverage and compound it all. My color doesn't help. I'm just being ignored. And uh, it was depressing. I mean, Prue Leith, bless her, who was a fellow trustee at the Royal Society of Arts, wrote a letter on my behalf to the Evening Standard saying, I'm disappointed that Mr. Gidumal is not getting coverage. I suspect because he is, uh, uh, he is not famous. And he, yes, that's right. He's not famous. He's not white. And he's not a nutter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, and he's not another. That's right, and that was instant. I mean, she just wrote that letter while we were at the trustees' meeting, and sent to me. She sent it off to the to the Evening Standard, and they printed it. <laughs> and she was a great backer for me, Prue It was just wonderful to have her. She's now well, good for her. So, so I suppose uh, running for mayor, you know, seeing that four percent and seeing the values, it, it really encouraged others to think. Look, our values are not that outlandish. And, uh, and yeah. uh, it is worth speaking yeah. out for Christian values in the public square and not to be ashamed or afraid. But mm. yes, there is a price to pay because there were a lot of public appointments I had before I started running for mayor in London. All those public appointments disappeared. None of the government ministers wanted to reappoint me. And then there was another minister. This one I can say, the transport minister. And um, we were both in the waiting room. And then he said, you're the... Well, you're the other candidate in the mayoral race, aren't you? He was a cabinet minister. He's, I said, yes, yes, Ram Gidumal. He said, ooh, I have your transport policy in my entry. <laughs> it's very good. 
And then the third one that I loved was there's a program called um, uh, the, the PM, you know, at 10 o'clock at night on Radio 4. Uh, yes. Robin Lustig, Robin Lustig. Yes. Who, yeah, Robin Lustig. He met me at one of the hustings that he was chairing. And, you know, he just took me aside. He said, Mr. Gidimal, I must tell you something. Uh, I was doing an interview last night. And, gosh, I'm trying to think of the name of the minister here. He used to be a foreign secretary. He said to me, I was interviewing him. And uh, the mayoral race came up, although I was interviewing him about his trip to Zimbabwe and he'd just come back. Uh, I, I, I was interviewing about uh, the thing and the mayoral race came up and he said, and I asked him, who would you be voting for in the mayoral race? Because there was a huge controversy in all, all that was going on. He said, ooh, I'm told the chap to vote for is the Indian chap. <laughs> 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 so again, a great compliment. I took that and he gave it to me, Robin Lustig. He said, you're obviously touching the right uh, yeah. points everywhere. You're getting yeah. key people who are speaking out for you. So I was quite pleased with the outcome. Anyway. Yes. So I, we're coming to the end now of, of our time. I, I, what is there anything that you wanted to share with us, which was like a kind of parting thought? One thing you'd want to say to people, a piece of advice or wisdom, just just to, as a to, to leave us with. Well, uh, that, that's a huge question, but but mm. I mean, I, I, I've given you two of the lines that I just really love because one of them is you know don't let what you cannot do stop you from doing what you can do. I think that's so, so important. And always think about this. If one person makes a pound of a difference, a million can make a million pounds of a difference. Think about the shellfish being yes. sent back into the sea. All you need to do is make a difference in one person's life. Make change, make your difference one person at a time, one thing at a time. We, we, can't, we can't solve the entire world's problem entirely in one shot. No. Do your bit is my message to people. Yeah. Just do your bit. What are you called to do? Do that and be be obedient to that. You know, success is not about money. Success is not about fame. As Mother Teresa said, being obedient is a great definition for success. That's a great, great thought to finish on, I think. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for your time, Ram. It's been, a, 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 it's been great fun listening to all these stories. <laughs> <laughs> no problem, Andrew. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Testimony Podcast. You can subscribe to the Testimony Podcast on all of the major podcast distributors and follow us on Twitter at TestimonyCast and Instagram at TestimonyPodcast. If you want to find out more about the Christian faith and connect with someone to talk about your experiences or answer your questions, just go to www christianity.org.uk from wherever you are in the world that's www.christianity.org.uk i look forward to sharing more of the stories that matter from people of faith with you soon until then thank you for listening and goodbye